On today's show, I've got Dr. Luke Hughes. Luke is a postdoctoral research fellow in applied physiology at St. Mary's University. He is very well known for his research and expertise on blood flow restriction training, BFR. For this episode, guys, get some paper and a pen ready because Luke is about to give an absolute masterclass on all things BFR. If you haven't done already, please subscribe to the podcast and check out our Instagram page at Performance. Luke, welcome to the show and thank you for giving up your time, mate. Um, just to begin with, could you outline uh, who you are, so what you do and what your background is? Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, so I'm Luke. I'm an exercise physiologist based in London. Uh, I work in both a clinical and non-clinical setting. Um, I just finished my PhD in January this year in the area of blood flow restriction exercise. Um, and I looked at its use as a rehab tool for patients following anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. Um, as part of the PhD, I was working at University College London Hospital uh, in the NHS, and I conducted part of my studies with patients. And now I'm a postdoc research fellow in applied uh, exercise physiology at St. Mary's University in London, where I'm continuing to research blood flow restriction. Amazing. And how, how did you get into blood flow restriction training? Um, so I was doing, I did my undergraduate studies at Loughborough. So I did my undergraduate and postgraduate master's degree there. Um, and then especially during my master's degree, I became quite interested in, um, novel therapies and altering, um, normal physiology. And I came across blood flow restriction training. Um, there was a PhD being offered down at St. Mary's with Stephen Patterson, who was my supervisor. Um, so I applied for that um, did a lot of reading, interviewed, and then um, got the PhD and embarked upon that journey. Brilliant. And, and you know, BFR has been around for a little while, but it's it's definitely trending and more apparent in social media. And you're seeing it a lot more often in clinics as well at the moment. Is there a reason why it's going through this kind of boom at the moment? Yeah, I think so. The first um, bit of research uh, around BFR that I can think of was back to 1995. Um, it was developed in Japan uh, by Dr. Sato. Um, he was a bodybuilder and he started experimenting by uh, tying ropes and bicycle inner tubings around his limbs um, to induce blood flow. And I was looking at the effects on mainly hypertrophy from a bodybuilding's perspective. Um, I think a lot of the early research, people didn't really know how it was working. Um, and then, you know, in the late 2000s, people started looking at the mechanisms. A lot of the work from Jeremy Lonerke's group over in the States um, started to develop standard protocols. And we were looking at the effect on muscle size and strength. And I think then people kind of clicked and thought, well, hang on, that's actually probably a great tool for people who are low compromise. If we can achieve muscle strength and hypertrophy adaptations when exercising at a low intensity, um, then it would be great as a clinical rehab tool. And of course, um, as you'll know yourself, there's a great demand for any novel therapies in the clinical world. So um, I think that's kind of why in the last four or five years it's kind of exploded a little bit. Um, and it seems at the moment to be working across a range of clinical populations. So I think it's attracting in, uh, interest from all kinds of clinicians in all kinds of areas. Yeah. And just for the listeners that aren't too familiar with it, from a kind of basic level upwards, how how does BFR work and what how what are the kind of mechanisms that allow it to take effect on the body? Okay, so um, to begin with, blood flow restriction exercise, it's often referred to as katsu training or occlusion training, um, and essentially it involves exercising at a low intensity with restriction of blood flow in the exercising limb. So if we think of it in terms of re resistance exercise, um, the typical load used is about 30% of maximum strength. 
To achieve blood flow restriction, some form of a tourniquet is applied to the most proximal portion of a limb, and then it's inflated to a predetermined pressure. This then causes mechanical compression of the underlying vasculature. And what it does is it reduces arterial blood flow to the tissues below and distal to the cuff. So it creates an ischemic and hypoxic environment in these tissues. When we're inducing BFR, what we're aiming for is partial restriction of arterial blood flow, approximately 80% reduction, and full restriction of venous outflow. And that's key. And the reason we can achieve that is because veins require less pressure to fully occlude than arteries. So typically the cuff is inflated before the beginning of exercise and then it remains inflated throughout uh, the whole of exercise, including the intercept rest periods. So if we think about low intensity exercise by itself, it's not typically associated with a high level of intramuscular metabolic stress, at least when it's not performed to concentric failure. However, when we perform low intensity exercise with blood for restriction, we get a venous pooling of blood and it's actually metabolite rich blood. Uh, and this pulls in the exercise on the limb, and then the continuous application of blood flow restriction traps this blood in the muscle throughout the whole of the exercise periods, and it creates a high degree of metabolic stress. So that's kind of what how we apply BFR and what's happening during. If we have a little think about the the mechanisms, so if we think about muscle strength and hypertrophy adaptations to begin with, because it's always a good good starting point, and it's kind of what BFR is mostly known for. <clears throat> The American College of Sports Medicine recommends resistance training using external loads of between 75 to 85% of one rep max to achieve muscle hypertrophy and strength adaptations. So what we now know and it's been documented uh, multiple times in the literature is that addition of blood flow restriction to low intensity exercise stimulates muscle hypertrophy and strength adaptations. With regards to hypertrophy, the adaptations with blood flow restriction exercise appear similar in magnitude to what we get with heavy load resistance exercise for both injured and non-injured individuals. When we look at strength, the adaptations with blood flow restriction exercise are either similar to heavy load resistance, resistance exercise, so in injured populations, but in non-injured populations, the strength adaptations don't appear as great. So this is kind of why I like to look at blood flow restriction as a kind of progressive rehab tool. So <clears throat> when we're thinking about how BFR works, it's useful to compare it to traditional heavy load exercise. So we think if we think with traditional resistance training, both metabolic stress and mechanical tension are often described as primary hypertrophy factors and they drive muscle growth following a degree of myotrauma and damage during resistance exercise. It's then thought that several secondary mechanisms are activated, which then contribute to muscle growth and adaptation. So things such as um, elevated systemic hormone production, uh, cell swelling, anabolic signaling and increased recruitment of our fast twist muscle fibers. If you think about blood flow restriction exercise, we said we're performing at a low intensity, so approximately 30% of one rep max versus the 70 to 80 that's recommended. So the degree of mechanical tension is very low compared to traditional resistance exercise with little or no muscle damage apparent. However, what we do get with BFR exercise is a high degree of metabolic stress, which is likely one of the main factors driving the adaptations. So as an example, if we're trying to summarize research so far, what we can see is that addition of blood flow restriction to low intensity exercise can increase the recruitment of fast twitch fibers, which are normally only recruited at um, high workloads and high intensities of work. It can also stimulate muscle protein synthesis, trigger spikes in growth hormone and cause a high degree of cell swelling. So if we're going to summarize the available literature so far, it's likely that the mechanisms driving adaptation with blood flow restriction exercise are similar to what's driving adaptation with traditional heavy load resistance exercise, but they're occurring in response to a slightly different stimulus. So it's more dependent upon the metabolic stress. Um, were you ever you? Well, 
would you ever recommend that somebody could do a more mechanically stressed training program and then say at the end of the workout or training session top up with some occlusion based work or do you tend to do them separately yeah so in my experience i've I've never done that um i know of people who i've spoke to have done that and um a lot of people i've come across say they use it as kind of like a finisher to 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 reach uh, full fatigue um at the end of a a session a training session um and i can i can see why because i think you know there is a high degree of metabolic stress with blood flow restriction exercise uh and if anyone who's listening has ever done it themselves they'll know that um personally i've only ever used them separately and i think for me the whole idea of blood flow restriction exercise is that it's not a replacement for heavy load training um and for a number of reasons and i'll give you an example so if we think about um what we get with heavy load resistance training yes we get adaptations strength and size neural adaptations we get things like tendon adaptations which are equally as important however with blood flow restriction exercise the intensity is so low we know tendons need high mechanical load. We know from Jill Cook's work, that's the kind of load they need to adapt. Whereas we don't get those adaptations of blood flow restriction exercise. So for me, blood flow restriction exercise, its place is to, when an individual is limited to low intensity exercise, whether that's resistance or aerobic, adding the cuff and inducing blood flow restriction during that low intensity exercise to increase muscle strength and size and perhaps accelerate an individual's return back to heavy load training whether they can then get the additional adaptations that come with that traditional form of training. Yeah. And if somebody's looking to buy a BFR system, is there certain things they should be looking for in a system? Yeah. So if we're going to go based off where we are in the literature and practice now, um, I would say that uh, a system with a Doppler is needed. Um, and to give a bit of background on why, so a lot of the early blood flow restriction research, especially early 2000s, tended to select any pressure, and then they'd apply the same pressure to every individual in a, in a cohort, whether that's in study or in practice. Um, but since then, it's been found, and again, a lot of this research came from Jeremy Lonerke's group over in the States, it's been found that a number of factors can influence the pressure required to reach a desired level of occlusion. So some examples include thigh circumference, tissue composition and compliance, limb contractile state, and systolic blood pressure, to name a few. So Applying the same pressure in all individuals would likely result in different levels of blood flow restriction. So where we are now in the research is that we individualize pressure prescription uh, and make it personal to the individual. Uh, And we do that by prescribing it relative to arterial limb occlusion pressure. So this is defined as the minimum pressure required for full arterial occlusion in the limb. Uh, And to measure this, we require a Doppler. So you can get handheld Dopplers. um, And the way of doing that is putting the cuff on the proximal portion of a limb. Uh, inflating the cuff and then measuring blood flow uh, in a distal artery. So as an example, if I'm ever doing that in a lower limb, uh, I use the posterior tibial artery and you can get auditory or visual doppiers. And essentially you keep increasing the pressure until uh, there's no more blood flow and then that's your uh, limb occlusion pressure and then we can prescribe BFR pressure as a percentage of that. So say 40% or 60% or 80%. Um, So to be able to do that and individualize, we do need a Doppler. So you can buy Dopplers individually and use them with some handheld cuffs. However, there's now um, systems on the market that have uh, built-in capability to calculate limb occlusion pressure. Uh, and these devices have been validated against Doppler, so we know it's, it's given us the same result. Um, for me, I find that that's very useful and practical in a, in a clinical setting. So Doppler, it sounds simple, but it takes a considerable amount of skill to make sure that you're on the artery and you're getting the right uh, value and to get the measurement correct. Whereas the systems that have built-in uh, software will just do it automatically. It takes out uh, any room for human error. Um, 
as an example, so in one of my final PhD studies in ACL patients um, at UCL, we measured limb occlusion pressure every training session across eight weeks of training. So we simply put the cuff on, use the automatic um, software, and it calculated limb occlusion pressure. It would take typically 60 seconds. Um, and we actually found that on average, the limb occlusion pressure increased over the duration of the training program. But if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because we saw um, considerable muscle hypertrophy across the eight weeks. So we're getting changes in the in the tissue within the limb. So the pressure required to restrict blood flow is going to change. So that kind of highlighted to me the importance of making sure we measure uh, LOP all the time. Uh, and what we also found as well, it's unpublished, but we found that um, limb occlusion pressure changed on a daily basis. So if the same patient trained on a Monday and a Thursday, as an example, uh, their limb occlusion pressure on a Monday was different to a Thursday. So again, it highlights the importance of individualizing that pressure. And I think the, the way, the only way we can do that is by using the Doppler, whether that's handheld or, or a system with built-in software. Yeah. And when, when you're deciding whether you should use BFR with a, a patient or an athlete or an individual, is there, is there like a safety process or a screening tool that you use, or is there things that you consider before deciding to, to use it with them? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Um, so Historically, there has been and there still is a lot of debate and discussion around the safety of blood flow restriction. So to put it simply, um, at present, there's no robust evidence to show that blood flow restriction exercise carries a greater risk, safety risk, than an equivalent form of exercise at a higher intensity. Nothing I've seen in the literature so far, and it was uh, that was reviewed quite recently uh, by Chris Brander. Um, that being said, it is to ensure that you know, there is minimal risk, uh, it's important to do two things. So first of all, screen for potential risk factors prior to implementing blood flow restriction, and then B, to prescribe and apply blood flow restriction pressure correctly and effectively. So if we think about screening, there's been a number of tools published in the literature. Um, Kind of the main risk factors or things I would view as the um, main risk factors. So things such as a history of cardiovascular, respiratory or nerve disease and or injury. Um, certain blood conditions such as sickle cell anemia or any clotting um, conditions, the use of anticoagulant medications, um, a history of rhabdomyolysis, um, so extreme muscle damage, or any post-op complications that carry or increase the risk of a DVT. So they're kind of the main um, risk factors I would screen for before implementing blood flow restriction. However, one thing I will say is that the list of contraindications to blood flow restriction exercise is becoming smaller and smaller. So as an example, um, hypertension is often stated as a contraindication to blood flow restriction exercise. However, if you look at the existing literature, several studies have been published in patients with knee osteoarthritis. And in my experience, uh, very often those patients are hypertensive. There's also been studies conducted in patients with ischemic heart disease, and there's numerous studies ongoing. So in my opinion, I think as long as people have assessed for the criteria I just mentioned and then have the individual's approval and some form of medical practitioner approval, then they are fine to use blood flow restriction. And as with any training tool, stop using it if there are any effects. And for somebody that's never used it with a patient or client, whoever before, do you recommend they go through any specialist training or can you kind of read up on it and apply it safely and effectively? Yeah, so I think... The important thing is that individuals who want to apply blood flow restriction, they definitely need to be aware of the potential risk factors and what happens during blood flow restriction exercise. So what's going on in the muscle and to be able to look out for any warning signs of things not going as planned. 
Equally, it's important to understand the current literature consensus regarding optimal parameters for blood flow restriction application. So we want to we want to make it safe, but we also want to maximize effectiveness as well. So for some of the current equipment available, um, certification training is required before you can buy certain units because they're medical grade tourniquets, which I believe are the best tools for blood flow restriction exercise. Um, we recently um, published a position stance of myself and my PhD supervisor, Stephen, who led the project and different blood flow restriction researchers around the world. We just published a, a position stand that summarizes the literature and um, optimal parameters for application. So theoretically, anyone could go and read that paper, uh, see the most up-to-date um, guidelines and, and use that to apply blood flow restriction. Um, when you're using it with a with a, an individual or a patient, do you have set reps and sets that you always follow, or do you have different programs and parameters that you apply to different populations? Yeah, so um, it's a good question. I think it's there are there are guidelines, and what we know is is for example an optimal rest period or an optimal pressure. Um, but I think uh, I have a suspicion as we. As we move forward in research, we're going to find that might be slightly different for slightly different populations and contexts. But I'll give you a quick summary of what we know so far. So there are a number of different parameters to consider, um, just like there are with any resistance exercise protocol. So I think we should start with pressure, because I think that's uh, probably one of the most prominent ones. So as I mentioned, it's best practice to prescribe uh, pressure relative to limb occlusion pressure. So the ultimate pressures to aim for are 80% uh, limb occlusion pressure in the lower limb and about 60% for the upper limb. And that that makes sense because the upper limb tends to have uh, less tissue than the lower limb. Um, what we know in the literature is that higher pressures have been shown to maximize adaptations. So we still see adaptations when we use lower pressure, such as 40% limb occlusion pressure. However, these adaptations are typically smaller in magnitude. However, a great example here, you know, from a clinical perspective and having worked in that setting, some individuals may not tolerate a higher pressure because um, there's quite a lot of muscular discomfort associated with that. So a lower pressure could be useful to begin with. And in my experience, there's a bit of a repeated bout effect, whereas individuals become more accustomed to a pressure with repeated sessions. So aiming for between 40% um, percent and 80% limb occlusion pressure to stimulate adaptations. Regarding the intensity of exercise, as we mentioned, it is a low intensity. So for resistance exercise, we're looking for approximately 20 to 30% of one rep max. Um, it's more commonly 30% that is used now. For aerobic exercise, because um, blood frustration can be applied with aerobic exercise as well, uh, we're typically looking at uh, an intensity of around about 40 to 50% of VO2 max or heart rate reserve. However, the, the literature around aerobic exercise is less conclusive. Um, so we've had pressure, we've looked at load. Uh, if we think about the set and rep scheme, so uh, a common approach with blood flow restriction exercise is to perform four sets of exercise, which typically involves 30 repetitions in the first set and then 15 repetitions in each subsequent set, which totals 75 reps overall. If, uh, if I'm honest, it's really an approach that was kind of used in the early literature and it worked, so people continue to use it. Um, I think the key thing about it, which contributes to why it's working, is that you're working until failure to maximize the level of metabolic stress in the muscle, which I said is you know, a big driving factor for adaptations. Interestingly, there's been a study which found that doubling this volume of work did not uh, further facilitate training adaptations. Um, another approach is to perform three to four sets to failure. However, a problem I find with this is that because it's such a low load, and the effects, the metabolic stress doesn't really build up until set two or three. Um, that can lead to someone doing 100 repetitions in the first set and then potentially two in the second set. So I'm not a big fan of that approach. So I use that 75 rep scheme. 
Um, and then what we do is give them um, a rest period of between 30 to 60 seconds in between sets, which has just been shown to maximize adaptations to this form of training. So the rest period is slightly shorter than what we'd expect with conventional um, heavy load exercise. Do you ever, you know, you mentioned that you sometimes use it as a way to initiate loading in a load compromised person. Um, would you ever bring the pressures down and the loads up as a sort of halfway point between using BFR and using regular mechanical stress? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And uh, it's definitely something that's been discussed before. Um, I personally have uh, never done that myself. Um, I think there becomes a point where we increase the load so much that adding the cuff on just isn't possible. Um, it's, it's It becomes too intolerable for people to complete. Um, I know... For example, my PhD supervisor um, included a condition in one of his studies where he looked at 50% of uh, one rep max. And um, in my experience, I've, I've seen people do that. They can't actually even complete the exercise. So I would be more tempted to stick stick with the loads and, and, and then um, alter the pressure, bring the pressure down, get them to uh, do the exercise. We're still getting adaptations of the lower pressure and then kind of work their way up to, to, the, to the higher pressures. Um, and as opposed to, to maybe increasing the load a huge amount, what what we did with our ACL patients in the NHS, which I think worked really well, is that if, so we prescribed pressure, we prescribed the 75 rep protocol, and we um, prescribed the load based on their um, strength tests after surgery. And then what we did was, you, you'll find that 75 repetition pro protocol is to failure. So someone might get 30 reps in the first set, they may get 50 in the second, and then they may get five and then two in sets three and four. So it is to failure. What we did was, um, Throughout training, if uh, an individual could complete all repetitions on two subsequent occasions, we increased the load by 10%. And then what we found is that the reps they did in the following session went back down again. And we kind of used that. That's what we played around with more as opposed to um, bringing the load high up and the pressure down. And assuming you're using that, you know, the conventional 75 rep protocol, how often can you put somebody through BFR in a, in a, say, in a training week? So the beauty of, of blood flow restriction is that um, because it's performed at such a low intensity, we can perform it at a high frequency. Um, so to, to look at it in the context of muscle strength and hypertrophy adaptations, um, there's a number of studies in the mid-2000s that have shown that we get muscle strength and hypertrophy adaptations um, in two weeks and one week. And even one study even showed changes with six days. Um and people think, wow, that's great. We can get adaptations really quick. But I think what a lot of people fail to realize is that within those studies, blood flow restriction was used at a very, very high frequency. So five to six days a week, sometimes two to three times a day. Um, I think we can do that because it's such a low intensity and we don't really tend to get muscle soreness or any muscle damage with blood flow restriction because it's such a low mechanical load. Um, and I know, I know one of my uh, supervisors, Ben Rosenblatt, when he worked at the intensive rehab unit, and, you know, he may get an individual for five or six days. Um, and then it's a great opportunity to use BFR at high frequency. Um, personally, I think if people can and have that kind of access to a patient, then yes, definitely um, use it twice a day. So aiming for twice a day, five days a week um, is is what I try and aim for. And how long would you continue that for typically? Um, I mean, I suppose that question depends upon um, the setting you're within. Um, but I mean, I personally would carry on with that volume of work until until um a clinician a qualified clinician um such as the physio or the surgeon someone deems the patient or individual able to then transition to heavy load training 
Um, so I would keep on doing that high frequency. I think that the more volume, the better. If at any point, you know, um, say, for example, in the context of an ACL um, repair, if we were using the high frequency training post surgery and then, you know, we started seeing an increase in swelling throughout the day and after training, which was probably suggesting that maybe we're aggravating the knee with the volume of work we're doing, then I'd probably reduce it down. But if there was no problems, I'd carry on doing that. And I think um, what, what a nice approach is, um, I'd like to do some research in this area, is to look at integrating blood frustration exercise back into heavy load training. There's, off the top of my head, there's one study I think that has looked at this so far, but what they did was a period of um, blood flow restriction um, exercise and then integrate it with heavy load training. So say, for example, you've been doing uh, five days a week of blood flow restriction training twice a day. Um, rather than just jump into heavy load training, we can maybe do, okay, three days a week BFR, two days a week heavy load, or two days a week BFR, two weeks heavy load, and kind of transition back up to those higher loads. Um, I think, I mean, I'm not a clinical practitioner, but from experience of working in a clinical setting and learning from the physios around me, that could be a good approach to progressively um, move the patients back up to heavy loading. And and also, I think from 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 working with patients, that might be good in terms of the, the psychological aspect um, for them to become more ready to transition to heavy weights. And putting it into um, into a, I guess a very specific rehab scenario, you've mentioned. Uh, load compromised individuals really benefit from using BFR. Is there any specific injuries or kind of cases that you think BFR is particularly brilliant or you should you should absolutely use it for? Yeah, okay. Um, I think I'll, I'd like to talk about the um, example of an ACL patient because that seems to be one of the areas where most of the research focus is going on. Um, and I think it's really interesting because BFR can be used as a, as a tool from, you know, immediate post-surgery back through to return to, to heavy load exercise. So if we think about um, an ACL patient, so um, the goal post-surgery is to return them back to their pre-injury level of activity uh, and function, minimize the risk of re-injury. Um, after surgery, um, we see you know, substantial atrophy and strength loss, uh, particularly in the quads with an ACL patient. Um, and they may have a short period of bed rest. So I know typically with ACL injuries now, it's not necessarily bed rest, but um, bed rest or even reduced activity can uh, trigger substantial atrophy in a short period of time. Um, there's a number of research studies that have shown now that we can actually apply blood flow restriction in a passive manner, which essentially involves applying the cuff and simply restricting blood flow in a cyclic manner. So we'd inflate the cuff uh, and then deflate it. So a number of studies have shown that can actually offset muscle atrophy and strength loss possibly by by simulating muscle protein synthesis um, via cell swelling, which we get with blood flow restriction. So I think for ACL patients or any kind of patient who is uh, mobilized or in bed rest, BFR is useful in, in that scenario. Um, and also um, then what we can do now is combine blood flow restriction with neuromuscular electrical stimulation. So electrical stimulation is used to uh, offset muscle atrophy and strength loss in a period where we can't maybe manipulate or move the joint. Um, it's mostly effective when it's applied at a higher intensity, but that can often be uncomfortable and tolerable. Uh, there's now a handful of studies that have shown that addition of blood flow restriction to neuromuscular electrical stimulation can increase muscle strength and size, which is another way we can use BFR. Um, if we then carry on in the context of an ACL example, so once they've you know been immobilized or bed rest uh, and they start moving around upon ambulation, um, typically what we were doing with our patients is getting them on a bike, trying to get some early conditioning. Um, what I think is one of the most interesting and useful areas of BFR research is there's a number of studies that have shown that if we add a cuff on to low intensity aerobic exercise, we can improve muscle hypertrophy and strength. 
so we can trigger those adaptations. Now, we don't normally typically see those adaptations of the aerobic exercise, but there's a dozen at least studies that have shown this now. So, and then we can move on to low intensity resistance exercise with blood flow restriction. Um, and I think what overall, regardless of population we're using, I think that by using BFR in those manners, so using it passively, using it with electrical stimulation, with aerobic exercise and with low intensity resistance exercise, what we're potentially doing is accelerating their recovery, increasing muscle strength and size and function quicker in order to return them to heavy load training quicker. So I know I use the context uh, of an ACL patient as an example, but I think it applies to any kind of patient. So, you know, anyone after um, total knee arthroplasty, knee joint replacement, uh, any ligament repair, fractures. Um, I think it, uh, it, this is the beauty of BFR. It can be used in all these kind of patients, and this is why um, it's an exciting area of research to be working in. And sort of on the other end of the spectrum, how do you think it can best be used in um, an athlete or, or a general population of people who aren't injured? So say as maybe for a strength and conditioning coach listening, how could they apply it? Yeah, good. So <clears throat> this, again, is um, quite, a, quite a common question. So I think there's a number of possibilities. Um, so first of all, um, as an example, I was once doing a talk with a, with a rugby team um, and I got asked a question. Okay, that's great. Um, you explained how it works in rehab, but what about uh, for someone who's not injured? Um, I personally think it could be used as a useful tool um, during the season to help maintain muscle strength and mass um, without the associated delayed muscle soreness and fatigue typical of heavy load exercise. So um, this could be really useful in athletes or um, sports people who have a high volume of fixtures or competitions in a relatively short space of time. Um, so for example, championship football in England have quite a lot of high volume of fixtures. So if we wanted to maintain your strength and size of the muscle, rather than getting them to lift heavy all the time, can we potentially use a low intensity exercise, put the cuff on, maintain, not, not necessarily increase, but potentially increase, but uh, you know at least maintain muscle strength and size without the associated DOMS and soreness and fatigue. So that's, that's one way I think it can be useful. There's also research to suggest that blood flow restriction can be used both um, pre and post exercise in a non-rehab context. So um, regarding pre-exercise, um, blood flow restriction per se, so just the cuff itself, can be applied in a cyclic manner. So similar to what I mentioned earlier about inflating and deflating uh, with no voluntary exercise. This is more commonly referred to as ischemic preconditioning. So there's research in this area that suggests that applying IPC prior to exercise may improve subsequent performance. Now, there are the findings so far are conflicting, so not all studies are showing improvements. And I personally think the effects of IPC may be specific to certain types of individuals and sports. Regarding post-exercise application of blood flow restriction, there is some evidence to suggest that applying BFR again per se itself in a cyclic manner following exercise can improve recovery. So a colleague of mine at St. Mary's University examined this um, and he found that applying applying blood flow restriction post-exercise resulted in faster recovery across multiple measures of muscle fatigue, um, muscle soreness, swelling, and loss of maximum force production. So there's a, a bit of a suggestion that applying the cuff after exercise can maybe help promote recovery. And how long would you have to do that for? Um, so off the top of my head, I think the protocol was, um, so a typical passive protocol is usually five minutes inflated and then three or five minutes deflated, and it's typically repeated four or five times. So we're looking at um, 30 to 40 minutes, potentially. Um, so what they actually found in the study, so they compared 
uh, they had two uh, exercise protocols and essentially half the individuals had a cuff put on for um, approximately that amount of time post-exercise and they found that things like swelling was reduced quicker and uh, maximal force production was restored quicker there was less doms so um, there's not a lot on that at present but i think that is potentially a really interesting um area of research because that would be hugely beneficial to a range of athletes and sports people if that is the case as the kind of body of research um you know improves and gets bigger is there any areas that you think need more work or where, where are the biggest gaps in the research at the moment and our understanding of bfr <clears throat> okay so um there's about uh, well there's definitely over 200 blood flow restriction studies now and while we've discovered a lot i have a, a strong feeling that the field of bfr is in this very early stages so I think we know it's very effective at stimulating muscle hypertrophy and strength adaptations and also triggering vascular adaptations and improvements in blood flow. Uh, I think one of the areas we're lacking is looking at the effects. Um, so other things important to, to rehab or just individuals in general. So one of the main focuses of research now is examining the safety and effectiveness of this tool in a diverse range of clinical low compromise populations, which is great. Um, but two areas of research that I think are currently lacking um, which is through no fault of the research itself, it's just because they're quite new and novel and recent findings, um, is the idea of blood flow restriction having an effect on pain and also on bone metabolism. So they're two, two, two hot topics within blood flow restriction research. And where's the best place, you know, other than the usual um, academic sites where you can get the journals, where, where's the best places for people to learn about it and get more information on BFR? um so i think it's obviously um journals online are great um there's lots of um podcasts done on blood frustration exercise there are educational courses um i'm teaching one in london in august and also again in november um so there's plenty of workshops um on blood frustration around um my personal advice would be to if possible, if people want to use it, to go to a workshop or go to a course um, and have someone talk you through it and actually get to apply it while you're there. Uh, and I think definitely for people who are considering using it with um, a patient, an athlete or anyone they're working with, it's very important that the practitioner has, has experienced blood flow restriction themselves so they know what the individual is experiencing when they're using it with them. Um, but yeah, definitely um, there's lots of, lots of podcasts, there's lots of blogs online now. So if you type in blood flow restriction onto Google, it comes up with a whole, whole, a whole host um, of options. And if the listeners want to follow you or get updates or perhaps want to attend one of your courses in the future, where's the best place for people to catch you online and follow you? Yeah, so um, best place would be potentially on Twitter. Um, with my Twitter handle is at Luke uh, underscore H04. Um, and... I'm also uh, running blood flow restriction courses for um, a group called Owens Recovery Science, uh, which can be found online on the ORS website. Uh, and we arrange and run blood flow restriction courses just to give, you know, consensus on the most uh, the literature. Uh, so where we're at now and how we can apply blood flow restriction. We kind of go really in depth into the um, into the physiology and how it's working. But yeah, usually, usually I'll be um, if I'm doing talks anywhere or, or getting involved in something, it'll be all over Twitter. So that's probably the best place. Yeah. Well, listen, mate, that was unbelievably educational. Um, I, I felt like I learned a lot, and I think the listeners will definitely too. Um, thanks very much for giving up your time and, and sharing your insights. And, um, yeah, we'll, um, we'll touch base soon. No problem. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'd like to thank Luke Hughes for coming on the show today. Whether you're using BFR currently or just considering using it, 
If you're anything like me, you may want to replay that episode or go back to your notes to just absorb the sheer wealth of knowledge that Luke just dropped. And if you'd like to receive episodes as soon as they come out, please subscribe to the Informed Performance podcast or check out our website at informedperformance.com. 